to the book of Ruth. Use a pew Bible in front of you if you need to. It's on page 222. We're going to look at the first scene of this beautiful short story. Follow along with me as I read. Ruth chapter 1, starting in verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the name of his two sons were Maclon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These two took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Machlong and Chilion died, so that the women were left with, so the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. And then she arose with her daughters-in-law and returned to the from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you, as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. And then she blessed them. And they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will not, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. And if I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night, And should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they are grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters. For it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. And then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. And your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? And she said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. 
Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned and Ruth, the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Lord, we thank you for this word. We thank you for this amazing little story here in the Old Testament. God, give us eyes to see the connections. Give us eyes to see the King. Lord, give us eyes to see Christ. And I pray that in his name. Amen. I called Brad, my son, um, yesterday. He's a mechanical engineer with Caterpillar. They, you know, in the, he's worked building backhoes, skid steers. He's working on a new product line now for Caterpillar. I said, Brad, give me an illustration. Tell me what is a part in those machines that is essential but almost so small that it would be insignificant. Give me an idea of what is absolutely necessary in those machines that without which you'd be in a mess. So he takes to me last night and he said, I guess the, the easiest thing for me to think of is a carter pin. 25 cent carter pin. He said, without it, the whole thing falls apart. Backhoes, skid steers, new equipment. A little 25 cent part is essential for that whole thing to be held together and to work. The book of Ruth is like that. In my Bible, there's 896 pages in the Old Testament. I looked at the Pew Bible this morning, and I think it's like 803 or something like that. That is in from the beginning of Genesis 1 to the end of Malachi. Ruth, in the Pew Bible and in my Bible, is about three pages. I'm not a mathematician, so Al helped me. My calculator helped me. Ron Haas helped us, you know. So that percentage is less than a half a percent. Actually, it's around three-tenths of one percent is what Ruth entails in the Old Testament canon. And yet, without these four chapters, I think the whole thing falls apart. It's not connected. It would really not make any sense. And so this little book is just an amazing part of God's story. God's story is the account of creation, redemption, the plan of redemption, the fall, his ultimate recreation and putting King Jesus on the throne from Genesis to Revelation. It's the story of God's work. And the Carter pen that... I think holds so much of that together is the book of Ruth. And one that we could skip over and miss if we were not careful. And so as we begin this Advent season, it is just so cool to me that we get to spend the next four weeks in the book of Ruth and see the faithfulness of God as He moves in this mysterious way, in this seemingly insignificant way. And Ruth is a beautiful story, but it's not about a woman who falls in love. Mainly, it's not about a woman who loses her husband and her sons and is desperate and yet comes to find that there is light at the end of the tunnel. Those things are true. But this book, this amazing little story here is about King Jesus and how he comes about. And it's an amazing thing to see. So there's three scenes in this opening chapter and we're going to we're going to look at them. 
There's so many resources out there on the book of Ruth, and I would encourage you to pick one of them up. There's some really cool Advent devotions that are built around the book of Ruth. They're easy to find. Uh, I would encourage you to kind of work through this book over the next four weeks with us as we really see this picture of, of God's promised king and of his covenant love in the midst of chaos. And it is chaos, okay? Notice that it said when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and the man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn to the country of Moab. We've been through the book of Judges for the last two weeks. That's, this takes place then, okay? So in the midst of that darkness and that chaos, this beautiful picture shines out. It's just an amazing thing to see. But scene one is anything but beautiful. It's a picture of misery and emptiness. Misery and emptiness, okay? Now the context is absolutely critical. There's a famine. But there's not just a famine of food, there's a famine of leadership, all right? We've seen that in the book of Judges. What we see happening in Judges is what we see happening in the beginning of Ruth. When there is no king in Israel, and people do what is right in their own eyes. And that's what we see happening here in the beginning of the book of Ruth, all right? There's a famine of leadership. But there is also a famine of food. And what's ironic about this, what's cool about this, is that this begins in the town of Bethlehem. And Bethlehem means house of bread. So there's a famine in the house of bread. And lots of times in the scripture, famine is a clear picture of God's judgment, right? I won't take the time to go back and read it. For time's sake, I'd encourage you to go back and read Deuteronomy chapter 28. And in the first 12 or 14 verses of the book of Deuteronomy 28, you find God's promise of blessing if his people will be obedient. And one of those promises of blessing, kind of twofold, is that the land will be fruitful and marriages will be fruitful in the sense that offspring will be born. There is the promise of curse that follows next, starting around verse 14, I think. Where God says, if you are disobedient, the land will not be fruitful, and neither will your wives. And we see both of those taking place in the book of Ruth. So sometimes famine is a judgment of God. Sometimes famine, though, is what? It is God's gift. It is a blessing of God. What's the story of Joseph? There in Genesis, starting around chapter 42 through 45, this famine is going on in the land of Israel, and that famine by God's blessing, takes them to Egypt, and you know what happens there through Joseph. So famine can be a judgment of God, it can be a a, a blessing of God, but always, whether it's judgment or blessing, it comes under the sovereign hand of God, the bittersweet providence of God. And so there's this famine, a famine of leadership, a famine of food, and right in the middle of that is this family that's caught up in it, as is always the case. And they have names. Remember in Judges, we did not often see names. But here we see names. The name are, these names are essential. And there's also something here I want you to see. And we're going to see it throughout the book of Ruth. There's a, there's a, a tool, alright, a literary tool called a chiasm. Called a chiasm. And it's a frame, okay? It's a frame built around the sentences and the words. And that's what we see in this first section of Ruth, this, this chiasm, all right? What I mean by that is verse 1 kind of parallels verse 5. Verse 2 
parallels verse 4. And then stuck in the middle there is this verse in the verse 3. So this chiasm in verse 1 is about a man and his wife and his sons. At the end of that in verse 5, there's the woman left without her sons and without her husband. So what has happened in between there? Well, verses 2 and 4 form a part of that chiasm too. There's this picture of these names. The name of the man was Elimelech. By the way, his name means, my God is king. Now what's ironic about that, interesting about that, and I appreciate this, that comes from one of the commentators. In fact, Sinclair Ferguson said this in a sermon. He says, my God is king. And yet Ferguson says, instead of turning back to the Lord, this little family turns their backs on the Lord and goes to live in Moab. Instead of mourning over the sin of the land and asking God to restore things, Elimelech leaves the fields of Bethlehem and goes to the fields of Moab. Now, I think we can cut Elimelech a little slack in some ways. His family seems to be starving in Bethlehem. And like many of us men, I'm going to do what I need to do to fix it. And so he packs up his family and he leaves and goes where he thinks he will find bread and life. But sometimes when we do what's right in our own eyes, it doesn't work, right? Judges is filled with that example. And I think we see that here in the first of Ruth. Elimelech, my God, is king. Naomi's name means pleasant or sweet. We'll see at the end of the chapter that it's anything but. One commentator said if she was in the south, they would call her sweetie pie. And that's probably true, all right? But that's what her name means, sweet. The names of Machlong and Chilion, commentators say there's question whether or not their parents actually named them this. Or if maybe the writer put their names in here so the people would see the significance of what's going on with this chapter, with this phase of what the story is. Because Mechlong's name means sick. And Chilion's name, name means frailty or mortality. So these two boys, it's not looking good for them if that's what their mother named them. But either way, you have these boys named sick, frail, mortal, and indeed, that's what we see unfolding in this pack, in this picture. So there's this, there's this chiasm that gives us that picture here. There's also this picture then of flight and loss where they leave. But it's not just that they leave, it's where they go that's significant. They go to Moab. The Moabites are the fruit of the incestuous relationship between Lot and his daughter. You can read about it in the book of Genesis in chapter 19. They are the bitter enemy of Judah. They are forbidden from ever coming into the place of worship in the Old Testament. God calls them idolaters. Marriage is not explicitly prohibited for them like it was against the Canaanites, but yet it's strongly discouraged. And so we see them going to this place where God says those people are not in favor with God. In fact, one writer I was reading said in Psalm 108 verse 9, God refers to Moab as a wash basin, okay? A wash basin. And, and really the term means like garbage can. So Elimelech and his family leave the house of bread to go live in a garbage can. And things don't work out that well for them. Flight and loss. 
But notice what it says. It says in verse 1 that they sojourned. It says in verse 2 that they remained. And it says in verse 4 that they lived there for 10 years. Do you see a progress? They sojourned. They remained. And they lived. Getting acclimated and comfortable in a pagan place is never a good idea. Never a good idea. And yet we see that transpiring here. It's the same thing we saw happen with Lot in Sodom. So here they are. They take flight, and there is nothing but loss. Elimelech dies, leaves Naomi with her two sons. They take Moabite wives, Orpah and Ruth. They live with them for ten years. They are barren. No children in that ten years. A picture of God's hand not being on those marriages. And those boys die, and the women are left without their husbands, and Naomi is left without her husband or her two sons. And it says then that they arose to return in verse 6, which takes us in to the second scene. And that word is critical. Return is a word that you see in the ESV 12 times in chapter 1. And it's a term of such importance just in the whole picture of what we see going on. Not just in Ruth, but in all of Scripture, okay? So we have this devastating loss, this time of bitterness, this difficult time while they're away. And then it picks up in this second scene where God, it, it turns out, is actually at work. He's at work. He's visiting there in Bethlehem. And we see this this work of God contrasted with this anguish on the part of these women and this amazing picture of Ruth's devotion. So look at verse 6. She arose with her daughters-in-law to return to the country of Moab, from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and was giving them food or had given them food. Now, I don't know where the news of this movement of God, I don't know how it came about. It says they were in the fields, all right? Maybe they went to the farm and garden store, and you know how they sit around and just talk about farming, and they talk about the weather and all of this. So I don't know what transpired. Someplace or other, they're having this conversation in the field or in the farm and garden store. You know, I hear it's raining over in the west. I hear they're getting rain over there in Bethlehem. Wow, boy, I sure wish we had some rain here. We could use it. Yeah, I know, it just seems to kind of go around us and go to Bethlehem. Well, ten years before, it was in Bethlehem. They say, man, I hear it rains over there in Moab. seems to just go around us and go over there. So I don't know how the word got around, but the word got around. That things were looking better in Bethlehem. And so they arise to return. And as they arise to return, at some point in time in the initial part of that journey, there's, there's, this, point of, there's this point of decision. Okay? Now this mention of God here is the first mention of God in the book of Ruth there in verse 6. Alright? He is visiting, giving food. Later on in chapter 4, he will visit or he will work again in Ruth and Boaz's life and give a child, give a son. But the Lord is at work. And then there comes this place where there is this appeal. And it's really just a wake-up call. I call it a logical, loving appeal. 
logical in the sense from a, from a man-centered, worldly perspective, it makes absolute sense. It makes absolute sense. Naomi says to her daughters-in-law, you just need to go back home. Go back to your mother's house. Go back there where you have family. Go back there where you'll be received. Later on, she says, go back there. That's where your gods are. And so she gives him this appeal, a very logical appeal, first just based on biology, based on reality, right? She said, look, my sons are gone. Do I have, do I have sons in my womb? She says down there in verse 11, no. Go back because I'm too old even to have a husband. And even if I did have a husband and we conceive tonight, are you going to wait until they're old enough to marry? I mean, she's approaching this from a very logical standpoint. I'm a widow in a foreign land. I have no significance. I'm a nobody here. And right now you are connected with a nobody. Go back. Go back where you'll have family and can get a husband. And she blesses them. It's beautiful in a way. Naomi is struggling spiritually right here. Right? But yet there is this, there's this seed of faith. I think it's an anchor of faith in some ways, where she, she prays, May the Lord deal kindly with you. May He grant you rest there in the house of your husband. Would the Lord be kind to you? Would He give you peace? Would He give you rest there, she says in that verse? Do not miss that term, kindly, there in verse 8. May the Lord deal kindly with you. That is the primary theme throughout the book of Ruth. Really, it's the primary theme throughout the scriptures. That word kindly is God's hesed love. It is his covenant love. It is God's covenant faithfulness. It is God's covenant kindness. It is God's covenant commitment to his people. And that word kindly is so important for us to see. We do not need to skip over it. It's used over 250 times in the Old Testament. And almost all of those refer to God. Almost all of those kind of echo what we read in Psalm 36. Listen to verses 5 through 7. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heaven. Your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness, he says, is like the mighty mountains. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast, you save, O Lord. How precious is your steadfast love. The children of mankind take refuge, he says, in the shadow of your wings. We will hear about that in a couple of weeks. This picture of God's hesed love, his steadfast love. And listen, this is the foundation of Naomi's life, even in the midst of bitter suffering. And it must be for us, too. It must be for us, too. God's bittersweet, sovereign providence that we see here is foundationally lifted up and held together by his kindness, by his hesed love. And there is this emotional scene here where they are weeping loudly, they're crying. It, it, it should tear your heart out in many ways because there's this devotion to one another, this deep devotion. Now, many of us can testify that sometimes the relationship between a man's wife and that man's mother is not always ideal, right? Right? I mean, we make jokes about our mother-in-law and all that other kind of stuff. That is not what we see here. The devotion between this woman and her daughters-in-law is deep. It is rich. 
It is beautiful. And right now it's being torn apart by circumstances. It's being torn apart by culture. It's being torn apart by so much. And one of the things that we see here is Naomi has deep love and deep concern for them, but also Naomi has a broken heart. And lots of times the options before us, when we're making those decisions based on our broken heart, are not wise. And they are not best. And so Naomi presents these women with a choice. You need to go back where you can find a husband. You need to go back home. Interestingly, she says, to your mother's house. There's only three places in the Old Testament where that's used. It might, you would think, go back to the land of your fathers. She says, no, go back to your mother's house. There is a beautiful perspective on the whole book of Ruth from a woman's view that we do not want to miss. But those three times that it's used in the Old Testament, it comes in the context of a fruitful, peaceful marriage. Two of them in the Song of Songs. So go back to your mother's house. Go back where you can find a husband. Go back where you can find peace. Go back to your God's to that old way of life. And Orpah cries and goes, and Ruth clings. You see that? She clings to her. And this picture is one of such strength in that bond, such strength in that love. Naomi, even though she is encouraging them to go back, Ruth says, no, I'm going to cling. And that word cling is the same word you see in Genesis 2 for the way a woman clings to her husband. A man and a wife cling to one another. It's this picture of covenant love. It's this picture of commitment. And there is this unbreakable thread. We sung about it this morning. There is this unbreakable thread moving all the way through the scriptures of being bonded to God by his covenant love, right? Clinging to him, as Paul says, because he clings to us. Taking hold of that for which Christ took hold of me, he says in Philippians 2. So here is Ruth demonstrating, I believe, the clinging, holding bond of God's covenant love for us. And she's exhibiting that and voicing that to her mother-in-law, Naomi. Do not ask me to leave you, she says. And Ruth, in some way has seen Naomi's faith as frail and fragile as it is. She's heard Naomi talk of her God, complain of her God. (laughs) And God uses that in this woman's life. He uses that because I believe what we see here is Ruth's testimony of faith, her conversion. We see Orpah take the broad, wide road that leads to destruction She turns her back on Ruth and Naomi and goes home to her religion, her gods, her former way of life. Ruth makes as dramatic a break culturally as we cannot imagine. None of us can imagine what it's like for her to make this statement of faith and to follow through on it. Our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan can. Our brothers and sisters in Muslim countries can. Because when they're baptized and take and, and make public their profession of faith in Jesus, they've lost it all from a worldly standpoint. And Ruth makes that profession. And this is another chiasm. This is another framed picture of this beautiful devotion and love. All right? 
Look at what it says in verses 16 and 17. And if you want to count the sentences, you can kind of follow along with me. It's not the verse numbers, but there's five sentences here. And these five sentences create another chiasm, another frame around which one central statement should be the main focus. All right. So these five sentences, number one, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following after you. Sentence number two. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Statement number three, your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Statement four, where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. Statement five, may the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. So there's five sentences here. Sentence number one. And sentence number five, go together. One is this promise, if you will, or this, this urging from Ruth. Don't urge me to leave you. And there's a pledge. May God do to me and so much more. It's a common pledge. And she's just promising and pledging in verses one and five. In this, excuse me, in sentence one and five. In sentences two and four, there's a commitment. Ruth says, I'm going to live and die with you, Naomi. I'm going to live and die in the same land as you. Do you see that? Sentence two, where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. And I know what everybody's thinking. I've heard this before in a wedding. I've heard this before in some kind of recommitment ceremony. And that's okay. I've never been able to talk a bride out of it. And I usually don't try very hard. But this is so much more. This is, this is two, at this point in time, two sisters in the Lord that are voicing a commitment that is anchored in God, anchored in His covenant love. Sentence three is the center. Sentence three is the profession of faith that's at the center. Ruth, I believe, has counted the cost, and she has said yes. Yes, to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Naomi. She says yes to this God. And in a way, I think she's saying here, Naomi, you know, this really isn't about you. I mean, I'm committed to you, but I'm committed to your God. Because I've seen his faithfulness. I've heard of him. And I want to trust him. Ruth chooses the narrow road. And I believe this is a picture of her conversion. And I believe we will see this affirmed by Boaz himself. Flip over to chapter 2 and just look at verse 12 right quick. In chapter 2, Boaz says to Ruth, The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. I think that's a picture. I think that's Boaz affirming her faith in Yahweh, her faith in the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God of the Old Testament. So here's this beautiful picture. God's hand, Naomi says, has been against me. God's hand has been bitter and hard on me. Ruth, it's going to be hard if you follow me. And Ruth says, I've counted that cost, and I say yes. Man, I love that section. What a beautiful picture it is. Now look at this third scene. 
Naomi just says, okay, whatever, <laughs> verse 18. You know, sometimes you just don't argue. All right? That woman's made up her mind, right? So I'm not going to argue with it. Naomi sees that. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women, and the women plural there, the women said, is this Naomi? And she said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full. The Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? When the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. A bitter heart comes home. And there's no way to soften this. Naomi's heart is bitter. Naomi's heart is broken. And while she does not openly blame God, she does give God the credit for everything that has gone on in her life. And we have to cut her some slack. Because we would do the same thing. Why? Why, Lord, has this happened? What in the world, Lord, is going on? Notice, they come back, and Ruth ends where it begins, all right? It began in Bethlehem with a famine. It ends in Bethlehem with a harvest, okay? So there is a turn, a major turn, but it ends where it begins. And this irony is just so clear to me. Here these women have left, well, Naomi has left, and comes back, she says, empty. And there's, there's just the reality of what goes on in our lives when we suffer. Bitter suffering. Triple suffering on Naomi's point. Her husband, her sons. In the culture of her day, she is a nobody. She has no resources. It's going to be cool to see how this all begins to, to turn around. But honestly, it's an understandable bitterness. Life has dealt her the heaviest of blows, and who would not stagger under them? Right? All of us have felt grief. All of us have dealt with it in one way or another. Now magnify it and multiply it. And then put the cultural weight on your shoulders that your identity was wrapped up in that one who is no longer here. And the society around you sees you as less than nothing. She's been dealt heavy blows, and they're heavy on her shoulders, and she's bitter about it, and she says so. <laughs> don't, call me, don't call me sweet, call me bitter, because that's the reality of her life. And notice, God has dealt bitterly with her, she says. God has brought her back empty after she left full. Number three, she says, God has testified against her. And finally, God has brought calamity on her or evil. The word literally means to break or to injure. God has dealt with her in bitter ways. And if we do and we do believe in the providence, the sovereignty of God, this is bitter. This is hard. How do we handle it? How do we reconcile this? Well, we reconcile it with the whole picture of Scripture, and we recognize it with what we're going to see begin to unfold in the very last verse of chapter 1 that just multiplies and bears fruit in the rest of the book. There is a harvest. There is a harvest. God is at work, and there is a barley harvest. Listen, our circumstances 
Some of you need to listen very carefully. Our circumstances and what's going on in our lives and our emotions must never, ever be the means by which we judge the goodness of God. Our emotions and our circumstances are not good lenses through which we can see God clearly. Naomi is an illustration of that. She's not seeing him the way she should. Oh, there's faith there. There's prayers for blessing there. There's the seeds of faithfulness there. God bless this woman. Oh, she is hurting so deeply. And she says so. And it ends with this ray of hope. I almost called JT and said, JT, we need to sing this hymn Sunday. But I knew what JT's life has been like for the last, well, several weeks with choir practice and everything else. The last thing he needs is me throwing on a hymn at the last that would just be hard. But I was close. I was close. William Cooper, it's spelled C-O-W-P-E-R, is that hymn writer who was the contemporary of John Newton. Amazing Grace John Newton, former slaveholder John Newton, pastor, preacher, poet, hymn writer John Newton. William Cooper survived as long as he did because of John Newton. William Cooper tried to kill himself multiple times. And, and historians tell us that the last hymn that he wrote following one of those suicide attempts, was the hymn, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. It's been almost turned in a cliche. You know, God works in mysterious ways. Well, lots of times it comes from this hymn when we hear that said. Listen, listen to the lyrics of it, okay? God moves in a mysterious way His wonders to perform. He plants His footsteps in the sea. And rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and he works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. I love this verse. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust Him for His grace. Behind a frowning providence, He hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. The last verse says, Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan God's work in vain. But God is His own interpreter, and He will make it plain. God's making it plain in the book of Ruth, in ways we would never imagine, out of circumstances we would never wish upon anybody, and in ways that apart from eyes of faith, we will never understand. Let me give you, let me give you five quick points of application, and I'll post these for you, but I just want to give you... Kind of five little nuggets, five things to hold on to. Ruth 1, okay, Ruth chapter 1 reminds us that there is never, ever, 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 ever a time when God is not at work. And when He's not at work in good ways. 
And even when we run away, and even when we turn to the world in our suffering, and even when our hearts grow bitter, God is working, and His covenant kindness, His faithfulness, His love is underneath all of that. Alright? There's never a time when that's not the case. Now listen, it may take a generation. It may take centuries for the full picture of that to bear the fruit. But it's there. It's there. Number two. Ruth shows us the bittersweet reality of God's sovereignty in our lives. God ordains bad things to come upon us. Okay? He does that. Scripture is replete with the record of that. His bittersweet providence is a reality. And His hesed love, His covenant love, His steadfast faithfulness, His ultimate goal that all things will be united under the kingship of Christ, right? Is working to that end. And He is refining His people Working the dross out of our lives and making it pure faith through every minute of that difficulty. Trust that, church. Number three, when we are in the midst of that suffering, that is not the time for us to begin trying to discern things about God, things about His providence, things about His sovereignty. It's difficult. My point in number three is that our circumstances and our emotions are never the way that we judge the goodness of God. Bad circumstances do not always help us see the goodness of God. And our emotions often do not let us see the goodness of God, right? I mean, somebody with an amen, could, somebody with a broken heart could amen that. Yeah, I don't expect you to, but you could. Because many of us have been there. And in the midst of that suffering, we must turn to God's Word. We must turn to God's people. We must turn to God's faithfulness as it's been exhibited over and over and over in the Word and in people's lives. We can trust God's heart even when we do not understand what His hand is doing. Number four, Ruth 1 reminds us this world is not our home. And we are in a grave, dangerous place when we are getting too comfortable and clinging to it too strongly. This idea of Elimelech leading his family to sojourn and remain and then live in that land, as Lot did with his family in Sodom, as, by the way, the writer David tells us in Psalm 1, as he gives us the contrast between that blessed man and that man whose life is not blessed. He says in Psalm 1, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly or sits in the seat of scoffers or stands, he says, or stands in the way of sinners or sits in the seat of scoffers. Walk, standing, sitting. That's not what God's people are called to do in this world with the wisdom of this world and the ways of this world. Instead, our delight is to be in the law of the Lord, and on His law we meditate day and night. This world is not our home. And finally, Ruth chapter 1 is just like Luke 15. And I believe that there are some in this church that just we just need to turn and come home. You just need to come home. You may be a child of God. You may have trusted in the Lord Jesus and walked with Him faithfully. 
And this last Thanksgiving, you were thankful for anything and everything, except Jesus didn't seem to make the hit list. Or you are so burdened down right now by grief and difficulty and bitterness. And the enemy would tell you to question God's love, to question God's purposes, to question God's intent. And God would tell you, I have loved you even while you were still a sinner to send my son Jesus to die for you. Jesus would say, this is love, not that you love me, but I loved you and gave my son as the atoning sacrifice for your sins. God's word would say that nothing in this world and nothing in heaven or hell in all of creation is able to separate you from the love of God. So the invitation today would be to get out of that pig pen like the boy did in Luke 15 and come running home to your father. Maybe run to him for the first time as your savior and as your king. Turning, as we see over and over in the book of Ruth, from your sin and yourself and come to Jesus. Put your faith in him. Come home. And as Christians, as believers... We will never celebrate the Advent as long as our heart is in this place in this world. Come home to Jesus. Pray today, God, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the picture we see of your covenant love in Ruth chapter 1. And we look forward to seeing it unfold and bear fruit in the rest of the book. Thank you for this little Carter pen of scripture. Thank you for the little, seemingly insignificant ways you are at work. Through people we might ignore. Through circumstances we would want to avoid. Through heartbreak we wish we never experienced. God, thank you that you're sovereign and good over every one of these. So Lord, do a work in our hearts today. Thank you for this word. Thank you for the fruit that it will bear, and we pray that it will. And we do that in Jesus' name. Amen.